Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, the rest of you can open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 today. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay because we have paperback Bibles for you. Underneath the chairs in front of you, passage is on page 534, Acts chapter 8, 26 to 40. Before we get started, I uh, just want to let you know that uh, today and maybe over the course of the next couple of weeks, you're going to notice some... Uh, some young people with cameras in hand filming things going on here in the church, and they might be filming you. Uh, so we're just alerting you to this, and you're wondering why is that happening. The reason it's happening is because on April 10, we're going to have our annual Golden Goose Film Awards. Um, yeah, we're excited about this. One of the uh, more entertaining uh, New Life events. And what we do is we see films that have been created by our junior and senior high youth here at the church and um, we give awards to uh, best actors and directors and actresses. And so it's, it's a really great time. So it's going to be April 10th. That's Sunday evening, 6 to 8 p.m. Um, great opportunity for you to invite people to come with you. So mark April 10th on your calendar. Uh, but uh, ignore the camera work going on around you as best as you're able. Um, so let's take a look here at Acts chapter 8 this morning. <clears throat> um, there is uh, one word that uh, a pastor can say to make his congregation squirm a little, and it's the word evangelism. <laughs> and it's not my intent to make anybody squirm today, but we do need to address this topic because we are moving through a sermon series here at New Life on our core values, core values of this church, that is the, uh, the priorities that we seek to pursue in all of the ministries that we do at this church. And there are five core values. We've been going through these the last several weeks. Quick review here so that we can see where we have been. Our core values begin with adoration. Adoration has to do with worship, corporate worship, Sunday morning worship, what we're doing right now. Uh, belonging is our second core value that has to do with community and fellowship and friendships that we seek to uh, facilitate here at the church. C is for compassion. That has to do with our mercy ministries to the needy in our church and in our community. D is for discipleship. That has to do with our um, desire to grow in our faith as we seek to know more about who Jesus is and what he's called us to do. And we learn by looking at the scriptures and all the Bible has to teach us. And so we pursue discipleship. And you're noticing here a pattern, the first five letters of the alphabet, to make this as easy as possible. So after D comes E, and E stands for evangelism, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So here's how we <clears throat> describe or define evangelism here at New Life. We say this, because the gospel is the power of God for all who believe, we are eager to share the good news with others, boldly calling them to faith in Jesus Christ, yet with gentleness and respect in hopes that sinners would be converted to Christ through the ministries of new life. We value this. We want people to be converted to Jesus. <laughs> We're not ashamed of saying that, although that's not maybe a popular thing to say in our culture. It's what we want to happen. Now, there's different kinds of evangelism. Um, foreign missions can be considered a kind of evangelism, and we're going to be talking about that next Sunday. We'll continue in the 
core value of evangelism as we uh, observe Mission Sunday. That's next week. So uh, another announcement, Missions Weekend next week, dinner Saturday night, Mission Sunday, Sunday morning. So we'll talk about foreign missions next Sunday. But we can also say church planting is another kind of evangelism where we send people out from our congregation to start a new church. That's what we did with City Hope Fellowship a few years ago. That's a kind of evangelism. But another kind of evangelism is what we call personal evangelism. And that's the kind of evangelism that makes us squirm the most, I think. Uh, maybe not for all of us, but for many of us, makes us just a little nervous. Um, so we're going to look to the scriptures to see what we can learn about personal evangelism because we have an example of personal evangelism right here in Acts chapter 8, 26 to 40. Now there are a couple of extremes that we can perhaps fall into when we think about personal evangelism. One of the extremes is to think like this, and maybe some, some hold this kind of view. It's like, I, I have got to share Jesus in every single encounter I come upon in my life. I've got to share the gospel with the cashier in the grocery store. I've got to share the gospel with the plumber who comes to my house. I've got to share the gospel with the person who sits next to me on the airplane. It's like no conversation can get past me without sharing the gospel. I would say that that's probably a burden that we don't need to be laying on ourselves. Um, there are just times when the timing is not right. Okay, So I, I don't think we need to feel guilty because we've had an encounter with someone and didn't tell them about Jesus. But the other extreme is this. The other extreme is, that's not my thing. I'm not gifted at it. I have no interest in it. I'm not comfortable doing it. I've never done it before. I don't know what to say. Therefore, I'm going to let other people do it. I'm going to let the people do it who are really interested in that kind of thing, like particularly my pastors. Let them do it. But I don't have a responsibility to do it. That's, a, that's another extreme. We want to strike a middle ground between both of those extremes, and I think, again, Acts chapter 8 helps us to do this. So <clears throat> the book of Acts is uh, uh, right after the four Gospels. The book of Acts is like a history of the early church. It tells us how the church grew right after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And the person kind of um, in the middle of this story we're about to read is a guy named Philip. Now, this Philip is the Philip who was chosen to be a deacon in Acts chapter 6, not to be confused with the Philip who was chosen to be a disciple of Jesus in the Gospels. This is a different Philip, but we see earlier in chapter 8 that Philip uh, went to Samaria. Samaria is north of Jerusalem. He went there and was preaching the Gospel. And um, now we see this encounter that Philip has with this individual, and it's such a noteworthy encounter that Philip has really gone down in history as being known as Philip the Evangelist. So let's take a look at this passage. If you're able to stand up, uh, please do so. I'm reading for the ESV version, Acts 8, 26 to 40. Hear the word of God. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. 
So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers, shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going through the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azatas, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Holy Spirit, would you please come and open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> as it often occurs in the scriptures, there are three characters here that we want to pay attention to. Uh, first of all, we have Philip, who I mentioned to you. We're going to call him the one who is sent. Uh, but we also have this Ethiopian eunuch. We're going to call him the one who is seeking. And then we also have God himself, the one who provides a Savior. And so those are the three lenses through which we're going to consider this passage as we think about personal evangelism. So first of all, the one who is seeking. The one who is seeking in this case is this person um, who's not named but called a person from Ethiopia, verse 27. There was an Ethiopian in this place. Ethiopia then is not the Ethiopia of today, roughly the same area in Africa, but a larger area then, kind of south of Egypt. But in any case, we have somebody here from Ethiopia. We have a black African man is being described for us here, and this man happens also to be a eunuch, it says in verse 27. There are different ways to understand the meaning of the word eunuch. Uh, eunuch can mean somebody who has been castrated, but it can also mean somebody who serves as a court official, and that's what it says here in verse 27 about him, eunuch, a court official. Now, whether the text is just repeating court official as to what eunuch means or whether by eunuch it means that he was castrated. We don't know that. It's hard to tell when the word is used exactly which it means, but it's at least one of those things, and we know in particular that he was a court official because the text tells us and makes that easy for us. Uh, but we see here that this man is an important person. Uh, this is a guy who is a servant of the queen, again in verse 27, Candace, the queen in Ethiopia. Uh, he is in charge of the treasury. This is a trusted man in charge of uh, all the wealth of uh, the queen of Ethiopia. This is basically a very high-level government worker, 
a person of much status, a person of wealth. He's sitting in a chariot. We see that in verse 28, which, of course, is a sign of the utmost luxury at the time. And so we have here an important person. But we also see here that this is not just an important person, but a person who is a seeker after spiritual things. This is somebody who wants to know the truth about the world in which he lives. Now, when I say that word seeker, I use it loosely uh, because Romans 3.11 tells us there's no one who seeks God. That in our sinful state, we naturally don't seek God any more than a policeman looks, excuse me, any more than a thief looks for a policeman. You know, we're not looking for a God to worship naturally in our sinful state. But when God starts to work by His Spirit in the hearts of people, they start to seek. They start to investigate things. They start to look beyond themselves to know what the meaning of life is. And that's what's going on in this man's life. And we see that because in verse 27, we notice at the very end of that verse that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. This guy had gotten on that chariot and traveled all the way from Ethiopia up Ethiopia up to Jerusalem because he wanted to worship. He came and he entered the temple. There was a word for these kinds of people. They were called God-fearers. A God-fearer at this time would be somebody who had a certain kind of respect and admiration for the um, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not someone who was a full convert. So this person is probably not completely committed yet, but he's seeking He's wanting to know the truth, and we find out here in verse 28 that not only did he come to worship, but he's even reading the Bible. He has a copy of Isaiah in his lap. Verse 28 tells us, uh, probably picked it up, maybe purchased it while he was there in Jerusalem, went to the Christian bookstore there and got a study Bible off the shelf. Well, no, probably not, but what he's got is probably a scroll of Isaiah in his lap, and he's reading it, and he's thinking about it, and he's interested in it. Now, isn't it interesting to note here that here is a man who has it all. He's wealthy. He's got status. He's a pos- in a position of authority. He serves the queen. He lives in luxury, and it's not enough. He wants to know the truth. He's longing for something deeper. He wants to... Get in touch with the transcendent. And it's so important to him that he embarks on this long travel from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. His heart is empty and he wants it to be fulfilled. He wants answers. Do you remember that song by The Who? I know I'm dating myself there, but uh, The Who from the 70s, the song The Seeker. Remember that song where he says, uh, I asked Bobby Dylan, I asked the Beatles, I asked Timothy Leary, but he couldn't help me either. They call me a seeker. I've been searching low and high. I've got values. I've got morals, but I don't know how or why. That's what Pete Townsend said in the 70s. He's a seeker. He's looking. He can't find answers from the leaders of pop culture at the time. He knows that he has a sense that there's a right and wrong, but he doesn't know why he thinks some things are right and wrong. Perhaps that's the kind of thing this Ethiopian eunuch was thinking. But the good news here, the interesting thing to notice here, is that God was at work in his life. And we can see this by looking to his past, first of all, because 
If you note some things that we have seen in the Old Testament, that there have been connections established between Israel and Ethiopia. You might remember that Moses was married to a woman who was called a Cushite woman. Cushite was Ethiopian. Moses was married to a black African woman. He was married to an Ethiopian. You might remember uh, the story of Solomon, the Queen of Sheba. Remember the Queen of Sheba coming to talk to Solomon, to learn from him, and to marvel at all of his riches? Well, it's debatable. There's some debate about this, but most people think that she was coming from Ethiopia. And maybe you remember the story of Jeremiah. In uh, chapter 38, I think, Jeremiah is lowered into that cistern. Do you remember? He was persecuted. And do you remember the person who came and lifted him out of the cistern? The person's name was Ebed-Melech, an Ethiopian. So we have these connections that have been established between Israel and Ethiopia under God's providence and superintendence of history. Connections have been made. Who knows how those connections have trickled down to this eunuch? We don't know. But certainly we see that God is at work in just the way this encounter has happened. I mean, notice what we just read here. Here's this guy in the chariot. Philip happens to run up at the very moment that he's reading the book of Isaiah, and he happens to be reading it out loud so that Philip can hear what he's reading, and he happens to be reading a chapter, 53, that happens to be the most explicit chapter in all of Isaiah about Jesus, the one who is exactly who Philip wants to talk to him about. It's pretty clear here that God is arranging things. This is a divine appointment between Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. Two people you wouldn't normally put together. How in the world could that possibly be orchestrated unless a sovereign God is putting all the events together to make this happen? So two things I want to show you uh, as we consider this seeker, this Ethiopian eunuch. First of all, it's this, friends. I think we should realize as we consider personal evangelism that people are more spiritually interested than you realize. I know you've been told, and I've said it many times before, I mean, we live in a secular culture. It's very true. We live in a culture that has parted from its Christian roots in many ways. It's a secular culture, but friends, it is no less a spiritual culture. People are longing for answers. People think in spiritual terms Um, There's a a woman named Tara Burton who wrote this book, Strange Rites, about the rise of a variety of different kind of religions in in America in the wake of secularism. She says this, a full 70% of the nuns. Now, the nuns are the people who, when they are given a survey to denote their religious affiliation, they choose none. They don't consider themselves to have any kind of connection to any kind of religious establishment. That's what nuns means. A full 70% of the nuns say they believe in, if not the God of the Bible, at least something. They have some sense of some transcendent being, even though they have no connection to a religious establishment. 47% believe in the presence of spiritual energy and physical objects. 40% believe in psychics. 38% believe in reincarnation. In other words, our nuns may not be traditionally religious, but they're not exactly secular either. So friends, when you're thinking about who to talk to about the gospel, don't make this assumption, well, we live in a secular culture, therefore this person is probably not interested. You will be surprised at how eager people are to enter into a dialogue with you about spiritual things. But the second thing 
I want you to remember from this is that God is more committed to save people than you realize. God is on the move. Our God has a missionary impulse. He longs to save people. Really, the hero of this story is not really Philip and all of the tactics that he is using to reach this eunuch. The hero of the story is God who is in relentless pursuit of all kinds of people throughout the world. And that's what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy. God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Our God is a missionary God. He doesn't call us to do something that he's not willing to do. He wants us to be missionaries because he's a missionary. Because he left the throne room of heaven to enter into our world in the person of Jesus to pursue sinners like us. God is committed to save people. And so just think of that. as You're nervous maybe about evangelism, but you don't know what God has done in the life of the person you're about to talk to. You don't know the things that they might be thinking about. You don't know the Bible verse they might have read today. You don't know what happened to them yesterday. You don't know their family background. You don't know the foundation that God has been laying in that person's life. So enter into this process expecting God to do big things because people are seeking the ones in whom God's spirit is at work and God is committed to saving his people. So the second thing we want to talk about here is the one who is sent. The eunuch is the one seeking, but there's one who is sent here. So we uh, are kind of establishing here the sovereignty of God. He's in control of all of these um, these circumstances, uh, and, and God saves who he desires, and he has planned that, and he is in control, but the fact is, friends, that God uses you and me as his instruments to save the people he wants to save. So we can't reason from God's sovereignty that it doesn't therefore matter what we do, because God desires to use us. He sends us to share the gospel with others, and we see this in Second Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Like there's a gospel message there, and God has given it into our hands and onto our lips and trusted us with it so that now we move forward with this message of reconciliation. That's the gospel, to proclaim it to other people. Philip is sent, but you're sent too, and I'm sent. We're all sent. We're all sent. We're not all sent to a foreign nation, but we're all sent to proclaim the gospel to others. Jesus said, you are my witnesses. He said that to his disciples. Jesus said, you're going to be a fishers of men, he said to his disciples. That's what we are. We're called to reach people, and here we have Philip is sent. And we see that very... um, Clearly here, see verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south. So there he is. He's being told specifically to leave Jerusalem and to head down south. God's got something in mind. Philip doesn't know, but he's being sent. And um, you see um, uh, later here, the the Holy Spirit uh, tells Philip to uh, go to uh, to the chariot. And I guess that's verse 29. I lost that for a second. Verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. So you see how Philip is is being sent. He's being urged. He's being directed to move toward this Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip is responsive. Every time it says the angel of the Spirit did something, he he rose up and went. 
And he did what the Spirit called him to do. Now, one thing that we need to be careful about here is uh, to to realize that evangelistic techniques vary from situation to situation. So not every evangelistic encounter is going to look just like this one. And we can't bring the exact same technique or tactic or strategy to every single person we meet because people are different. They're in different situations. They come from different backgrounds. We've got to be thoughtful and sensitive to that. You know, you're sharing the gospel with your grandmother is probably going to look very different than the way you share the gospel with your Muslim neighbor. Entirely different situations. So, Be careful about that, but nonetheless, let's look here and see how Philip approached this eunuch and see what we can learn for our own encounters with personal evangelism. All right? First thing I want you to see here is this. Take initiative. Take initiative. Be willing to take initiative. Yes, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3.15 to be prepared to give a response to everyone who asks of you. That's true. You should be prepared, but some people say, that's the way I'll do evangelism, whenever anybody asks. But if nobody asks, I'm not talking. Um, That does not seem to be the approach that Philip took. Verse 30, when Philip sees this man in the chariot, and after the Spirit told him to go, Philip ran to him. That's a man taking initiative. He is going after this Ethiopian eunuch. He's pursuing him. He's not waiting for the eunuch to come after him. He's going after the eunuch. And so we just have to be ready to to do that, friends. I know this is what is probably the most hard thing about personal evangelism. It's entering into it. It's, it's, It's starting the subject. It's getting the conversation in the direction. It's taking some proactive measures to get to a place where you can talk to somebody about the gospel. Not every occasion calls for that, but some, some do. And there are some you know, easier ways to do this, actually. You know, we, we're holding multiple events here at the church, and one of the reasons we do this is so that you can invite your friends and neighbors and coworkers to come here and hear the gospel. We've got a women's retreat coming up. We've got Golden Goose coming up. We've got another bluegrass event coming up in, in May. I want to encourage you all to start thinking now about who you're going to invite. Take the initiative. Be proactive. Seek people out. If you're writing a sympathy card, you know, you can just write something in there. Maybe you're writing to an unbeliever. They just lost their spouse. Write something in there about the gospel. Tell them about the hope that there is beyond death to be found in the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe it's just reaching out and asking somebody to go to lunch or somebody to go to coffee with you. Sit down with that person, get a conversation going, and learn how to do the second thing, which is how to ask questions. Notice what Philip does here as he approaches this chariot. He's come down this road to Gaza. He sees the Ethiopian eunuch. He approaches, runs to the chariot, and notice that he does not say, repent or perish. That's not how he begins the conversation, is it? Probably what happened is Philip reaches the chariot. He observes what's going on. He notices the guy's reading Isaiah. He's being sensitive to the situation, and he sees that as an opening. And so rather than some kind of a command, he asks a very thoughtful question in verse 30. Do you understand what you're reading? Do do, do you get this? Does this make any sense to you? 
It's a totally legitimate question. I, I think one of the things that makes us so nervous about personal evangelism is we don't want to be that kind of, that, that rude, awkward, intrusive person who's coming into a conversation and having that awkward exchange. It doesn't have to be that way. Open your eyes and see what's going on and be prepared to ask questions, good questions, good thoughtful questions, because when, the, um, when Philip asked this question, you notice how the eunuch responds in verse 31. How can I unless someone guides me? That's what we call an open door, friends. <laughs> that is a door thrown wide open in response to a thoughtful, simple, appropriate question. How can I unless someone explains it to me? Now, if the eunuch had said, don't bother me, I don't want to talk, it's none of your business, he very well could have said that. He's a very important figure, after all. He could have ignored him and not said anything. In which case, I think Philip should have said, guy's not interested, closed door, maybe God has somebody else for me to reach down here. But the door opened up, and so Philip stepped through it as a result of asking a good question. Begin with questions. Think carefully. What kinds of questions can you ask people when the time is right? What do you think happens after we die? I think most people have thought of that, probably have something to say in response to that. How do you determine what's right or wrong in this life? What do you do with your guilt? How do you deal with the guilt that you carry with you because of things you've done or things you haven't done in your, in, in your life? Those are legitimate questions. Now, you don't want to ask those questions right off the bat as soon as you sit down with a cup of coffee. It's probably a little awkward. You need to make some small talk. But eventually, you can get to the point where you can ask questions. Uh, another thing, be flexible. Be flexible. Here's what's, this passage is so rich with very interesting things because at the beginning of chapter 8, Philip was preaching in Samaria, and if you look at the first few verses, you'll notice that he was having great success there. Uh, he was preaching, verses 4 through 6, the, the crowds were paying attention, it says, unclean spirits were coming out of people, um, th there was much joy in that city, so here's Philip preaching, and he's gaining much success as he is declaring the gospel, and then God comes to him and says, um, okay, Philip, here's what I want you to do, verse 26, Go south toward the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. You're having much success here in Samaria, but now I want you to go to the desert. I mean, you can imagine Philip thinking, what? Why would I go someplace when there's nobody when up here is everybody? Why would I go to someplace where I'll probably have no success when I'm here in the place where I'm having all kinds of success? But... God has something in mind, and so Philip demonstrates his flexibility, and he's like, okay, God, if that's what you want me to do, I'm going. It doesn't make sense to me, but, but, but I'm going to go, and that might happen to you sometimes as you're thinking about evangelism. You're just thinking, this does not make sense to me, this person that the Lord has laid on my heart, or this person I find myself talking to. It doesn't make sense to you. It wasn't how you planned it, but God might be at work in the heart of an enemy of yours you haven't talked to in a long time. That might be the person God wants you to share the gospel with. It's never occurred to you before. Or maybe a person of a different race. I mean, here's Philip talking to a black African man. Some of us think, well, I'm more comfortable with people of my race. Well, maybe so, but maybe God wants you to share the gospel with people of other races. 
Be flexible. Be open to who it is God might want you to share the gospel with. You might think you want to start later. God might want you to start now. You might think you're going to reach an older person. God might want you to reach a younger person. Be flexible to how he was leading. The second thing, or the fourth thing, is this. Get prepared. Get prepared. Philip comes upon the eunuch. He's reading Isaiah 53. The eunuch asks for help, and Philip is ready. He's prepared, and he is able to come up into that chariot and tell him exactly what that passage means. It's impressive. Now, this gets to another of our great fears, I think, when it comes to personal evangelism. People are going to ask me a question, and I'm not going to know how to answer it. Let let me just tell you, I have that same fear, and I have a degree from a seminary. (laughs) I have that same fear. They're going to say something to me, and it's going to make me even look worse because I'm a pastor, and I'm supposed to know these things. I deal with the same fear. We, We all do. It's a common fear. Friends, there is no shame at all in just saying, I don't know the answer to that, but I can find it, and I will find it, and I'll get back to you. There's no shame in that. It's an expression of humility. It's actually appealing to people. It could work in your favor. Uh, But friends, you know what? You you might be surprised at how much you can answer. I, I really like how Donald Whitney puts it. Surely if we have understood the gospel well enough to be converted, we should know it well enough to tell someone else how to be converted. This is the gospel that you believe, right? Well, if you believe it and understand it to some degree, why can't you tell someone else about it? Yes, there can be difficult questions. That's true. We need to be ready for that. But sometimes it might not be as hard as you think. And the last thing I would just say on this is that, you know, if if you just feel like you're just totally unprepared, well, you know what? You might need to work a little harder and get ready. You might need to read your Bible some more. You might need to work through some of these questions that you hear people ask. Get ready. Philip was prepared. We should do the best that we can to be prepared as well. The last thing we want to talk about, and it's the thing that we should be most prepared to talk about, and that is the one who is Savior. The one who is Savior. So the eunuch asked this question, verse 34, as he's reading Isaiah 53, and he says, to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? And Philip answers here in verse 35, I think this might be my favorite verse in this passage, then Philip opened his mouth, it says. I, I wonder, why did Luke say it that way? I mean, we don't generally talk that way. You know, I opened my mouth and I told somebody what I did yesterday. You know, somebody asked my name, so I opened my mouth and I told them my name was Bob. We don't generally say it that way, do we? If you have the NIV, actually, it doesn't say opened his mouth. New American Standard, King James, ESV all say he opened his mouth. I just wonder if there's a point here, which is just this. To evangelize, you've got to open your mouth. People are not going to look at you and say, wow, what a nice guy he is or what a nice girl she is. Therefore, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. They're not going to get it from observing your life. Now, your godly life will enhance your gospel proclamation and give credibility to it. That's true. But no one's watching you get in the car and go to church on Sunday morning and understand the gospel. If they're going to get the gospel, you have to open your mouth. And so what did Philip say? Well, verse 35, he gets right to it, doesn't he? He, Philip, opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
just gets right to it, opens his mouth, talks about Jesus, described here as the good news, that, that's the gospel, that's what gospel means, good news. So we might ask now next, well, what is the gospel? What is it that, that, that Philip said about Jesus? Did, did he say, um, okay, this guy Jesus, I want you to know, Ethiopian eunuch, that he'll, he'll really help you with your personal problems. This, this Jesus, he is a great teacher. He's so full of wisdom, and he will help you live a productive life. Or did he say, Jesus is a very righteous man, and he provides a wonderful moral example so that all of us know how to live as best we can. Did Philip say any of those things to this eunuch? I think the answer is no. And the reason is because of verse 35. It says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture. What's he referring to? He's referring to verses 32 and 33 which is Isaiah 53. And look what Isaiah 53 says in verse 32. Beginning with this scripture, the scripture that says, like a sheep he was led in the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent so he opens not his mouth. What Philip probably said is, do you know who that's talking about? This, this sheep that went to slaughter? This lamb that was silent as he went to the slaughter? That's talking about Jesus. That's what Philip said. This, this Jesus is the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Jesus is the one who gave himself up to death. This Jesus is the one who has atoned for sins by shedding his blood and dying there hanging on the cross. That's what Philip told him. And we can see this in the scriptures. And he said to the eunuch also, if you will believe on his name, he'll cover your shame and guilt as well. Uh, I'm a journalism grad, as, as some of you know, Ball State journalism grad. In journalism school, they teach you this principle. They say, don't bury the lead. And what they mean by that is that when you're writing a news story, the most important part of the story should not be found in the fourth or fifth or sixth paragraph. The most important part of the story is in the first paragraph. And if somebody gets to the most important thing and it's in the fourth or fifth paragraph, they say, you have buried the lead. Very often as Christians, when we talk about the gospel, we bury the lead because we get distracted into talking about other things and we find ourselves kind of merging into a conversation about politics and we find ourselves trying to get the person to be conservative or Republican or Democrat or to vote for this candidate or to vote for that candidate or to be an American patriot or to be a Calvinist, or to be an infant Baptist, or to be a Presbyterian, and all of those things are burying the lead. Don't get distracted, friends. You convert person, a person to vote for your political candidate and they don't know Jesus, it doesn't help them a bit. Tell them about Jesus, you've got to get to Jesus. Philip did not bury the lead, <laughs> he got right to it. Told him about Jesus and this eunuch believed. It doesn't say that. It doesn't explicitly say that he believed. That's true, but the evidence for that is in verse 36, where the eunuch says, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? He commands the chariot to stop. They go down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. He baptized him as the first step of obedience to a brand new convert, this Ethiopian eunuch. And don't you wonder, what did that eunuch do when he went back to Ethiopia? Probably started telling people about the gospel. 
as it spread on the continent of Africa. So, <clears throat> friends, how, how can I just sum this up? It's a lot of information, I, I know, and, and maybe you're thinking, I, I, I can't keep track of all this, and there's, I can't say all these things. So, in summary here, let me just show you this. A gospel summary. As you have opportunity, as the Spirit of God nudges, as, as doors open, and as He gives you opportunity to talk to people through divine appointments, here are three things that you should be prepared to say, as, as simple as possible. If you want to give just a clear gospel presentation in its simplest form, I know there's much more to say to the gospel than this, but to start with, you can tell them about creation. You can say, you were made by God. You're created. And the purpose of your life is to know that God. That's why you're here, to have relationship with Him, to know God. Simple, just tell them that. People don't all believe that. People are being told they're evolved out of a, a swamp from 10 million years ago. Tell them they're created. That This is good news to start with, friends. That this means you have value and dignity in this world. There is meaning to this life. That's what you're telling them, by telling them they're created. But then secondly, you've got to tell them about sin. You've got to tell them about sin. You can't give the person the impression that they're okay apart from Jesus, because they're not. So you've got to say, you've sinned against God. You, you've offended Him in the way you've lived, in things you've done and things you've not done. You just haven't worshipped Him the way you should. You haven't loved Him the way you should. You're a sinner, and because you're a sinner, you're under His condemnation. That's a hard thing to say to people, but you're not helping people by not saying that. You're under the displeasure of God, just like I was before I became a Christian. It's not that you're bad and I'm good. No, it's that this is what it is for everybody who's a sinner. And then the third thing is redemption. You've got to get to Jesus. You can tell him, Jesus Christ came and died for sins. He came to shed his blood to cover your shame and guilt. He came to atone for you. If you will believe on him and repent... He will save you and forgive you of your sins. It's, it's not that complicated. It's not. Tell them they were created. Tell them they're sinners. Tell them there's redemption. It's good news, bad news, best news. Now, questions might arise, and they might start to steer you into other directions. And on, the, on those issues, you can just say, I don't know as much as you want, honestly. But get them this. Because a lot of times we're so worried about the secondary matters and we don't ever talk about the main thing and we bury the lead. So give, give them the gospel and let the Spirit of God do with that what He desires. And maybe the most important thing to ask is simply this, friends, as we close. Do you believe this? You should believe it before you start sharing it. Perhaps today you're the one being evangelized. Maybe you need to acknowledge that you were created by God. Maybe you need to acknowledge that you're a sinner. Maybe you need to acknowledge that Jesus is the only way for salvation for you. Repent, believe, and enjoy the eternal life that he offers you in the gospel. And then go and open your mouth and tell others. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us the great privilege of proclaiming your gospel to people. It's an honor. It is. Make us bold Make us sensitive. Use us as your ambassadors to bring many to faith in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.